Hi, Talia Lazarus here and welcome back to I Got Back Up. Today I'm joined by Lee Spencer. Enduring an upbringing dominated by alcoholism and violence, and after being told he wasn't what they were looking for, Lee joined the Royal Marine Commandos in 1992, leading him through operational tours in Northern Ireland and Iraq. However, in 2014, Lee lost his leg whilst assisting people in a crash. Conscious and drawing on his military training, Lee was able to save his own life. But Lee's story doesn't stop there. He has since made history by rowing across the Atlantic, breaking records with an all-amputee crew and setting solo rowing records from Portugal to South America, beating able body records by 36 days and earning three Guinness World Records. So, join me in setting world records with Lee Spencer. What we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to talk all about you, all about your story, and obviously why rowing. Um... And there's kind of, um, there's a lot of different aspects to, you know, who you are and your story. But if if you want, it's good to go back to the very beginning. Um, and it is over to you, but kind of start where you think most resonates with kind of the person you are today. Well, I suppose the thing that defined um, me growing up, who I am today, and the choices that I made was, um, I initially, the very first start of my life was dominated by um domestic violence and alcoholism my dad was a, a violent alcoholic and he used to beat me mum up um and my mum and dad split up when i was about seven so that uh that stopped but it didn't you know that that left emotional scars i suppose is the probably the right way to term that which kind of dominated the the rest of my life and the decisions i made and where, and where i am today um, so what kind of decisions then kind yeah, of did it dominate as you moved through? I, right, I, I suppose, um, well, mum used to cry for me to come and help her as a little top. And uh, I was obviously petrified of my dad. He, he beat me up on one occasion at least. Um, and so I was petrified of him. But that left me feeling that I was a coward. And I, I dreamed of being someone who wasn't a coward, someone who was brave and could stand up to their, you know, and protect their mum. Um, and for me, growing up, the epitome of that was a Royal Marine. So that's why I, my dream when I grew up was to be a Royal Marine. And it wasn't because I wanted to be a soldier. I weren't really interested in soldiering, um, you know, a career. or I wasn't interested in any of that. I just wanted to be that person. And uh, I remember at 13, when you take your options, uh, you have like a little careers fair in my school, certainly did. And I went up to the Royal Marine then and he asked me, he goes, um, are you in, you captain of the football team? And I said, no. He said, you're in the football team. And I wasn't. Uh, he said, you're not what we're looking for. And at that point, any realistic prospect of the Marines being a, you know, a realistic career choice for me went. So I, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up as a as a job. But that dream, you know, it, it stayed there. And um, I, I left school, got into a job that I really didn't enjoy. And then at 18, I tried to join up again. And uh, I, was, I didn't get past the interview stage at the careers office. And Chief Petty Officer Smith, as a name emblazoned on my memory, said exactly those same words. You're not what we're looking for. Uh, and uh, again, went back to the job I hated. Um, I left that eventually because I, I realised 
although I didn't know what I wanted to do or be, I knew what I didn't want to do and that's what I was doing. So I thought, right, go as far as you can with uh, what you know. So I left my job and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give the Royal Marines one last chance and went to the careers office, got through the interview stage, went away on a selection course, which um, I think it was three nights, four days long. Passed that, got into Royal Marines training and never looked back, really. Why Why were you not what they were looking for for the first two times, let's say? What What, what was that? Um, I think uh, in I was 13 in 1983, which was just after the Falklands War and the Royal Marines were all in the news and very popular. And I think everybody wanted to be and they could have their pick. But also, I was um, uh, not very sporty. I... I'm, when I passed out of training, he actually said in my report, uh, if I can remember it verbatim, not a natural athlete, but rose to the challenge of, um, Lee, uh, what was it? Rose to the challenge of section, second in command on the final X. And it said something else. And then it said a good man with a question, a, an exclamation mark. But not a natural athlete is really what I am. I, I recently got my VO2 max uh, tested as part of a challenge I was doing last year and I am bang average absolutely bang average <laughs> now I, I wasn't sporty I wasn't I wasn't academic at school either but I, I think it was a combination of not being um, like when he asked are you captain of the football team or are you in the football team football's a game I played all my life in the street um, I'm just not very good at it <laughs> I wasn't in fact I mean I've lost my leg which I'm sure you'll come on to later. And um, I, they've got a walking football team in the village where I live. And I, I, uh, I score I score most weekends when I play with them. But before I lost my leg, uh, before I joined the Marines, I played Sunday league football in the Hackney Marshes uh, in London. And I played centre forward for a team for four seasons. And I scored two goals, half a goal a season as a uh, centre forward. So I must be the only person to have got better at football, having lost their right leg. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, if you can take that then. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story, honestly. I scored a hat. Yeah, well, right. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, we are going to obviously get into all of that. And, um, well, I, I know, and you're a football fan as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Can you uh, you support a good team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a, well, it's, football was a big part of my life growing up. The bloke who lived two doors away from me, we're talking um, like 77, 78, 79. Uh, he took me to every Arsenal home game. And uh, you used to have to go into the West End, I think it was. Uh, East End, sorry. And there was like this gate at the North Bank because kids couldn't go in the North Bank. You used to have to wait by this bank uh, gate. The gate would open and there'd be a load of dads there going, yeah, he's my son, he's with me, he's with me. <laughs> there's a seven-year-old, you know, you'd be like that, waiting to get picked up by someone, which is <laughs> like nowadays, you think it's up absolutely bonkers. But yeah. yeah. I used to, <laughs> and you had the FA Cup finals that Arsenal were part of from 78 to 80 
Um, so football and, and the Arsenal was always a big part of my life growing up. And we always played football in the street I lived in. Um, and, you know, I played at school, but just not to a level to get in any teams or be any good. <laughs> hey, well, you're playing now, so that's all yeah. that matters. And then, so what was the transition like then going into the Royal Marines? It was... Um, Initially, really difficult. Uh, I scraped past or through all of the um, mm. physical tests. On you go away, like you you pass the initial selection process in the careers office, and they send you away. Like you you do have to do a couple of tests and medicals and things like that, and then they send you away on something called a potential Royal Marines course, and it's uh, three nights and four days down at Limston in Devon. Uh, and a series of physical tests where you get a look at the Marines to see if it's what you want. And uh, more importantly, they have a look at you. And I scraped through that. Uh, about a third passed and I was in that third, but I got asked to wait behind and had to speak to the Sergeant Major where he told me, look, you really, really scraped this by the skin of your teeth and you need to work on this, this, this and this. So when I joined up, uh, there was lads who ran for, there was a lad who ran for Scotland, ran for their counties. Everyone seemed to be a sportsman or, or good at sports. And then there was me and I'd done the maths and thought, well, about a third on average are going to pass. And I'm firmly in the bottom third here. And if I'm not bottom of the bottom third. So from that point, my goal was to just still be in training at the end of week, end of the week. And as the weeks progressed, uh, more people started leaving. And uh, it always uh, puzzled me because they always seemed so much uh, stronger and fitter and more physically capable than me. And I was really confused because I, I was desperate to stay there and they seemed to be desperate to get out. And the thing about joining the Marines is you... You can't just go to the careers office and like sign there, son, on you go and you're in. You have to put a lot of effort in and it's quite difficult. It's quite a long protracted selection process. And everyone who left said the same thing. They all said, oh, it's not for me. And I knew that was a lie because it must have been for them at some point. And also, how do you know it's not for you? Because the Royal Marines isn't training. It's the hurdle you have to get over to actually become a Royal Marine. And so I knew they were lying to themselves. And uh, I was I was, uh, I was astonished that they could lie to themselves because I knew that if I left, I'd never be out to look in the mirror and go, well, I could have done it, but it just wasn't for me. I knew I, I wouldn't, you know, my uh, lack of self-confidence and um, lack of self-esteem would never allow me to pretend that. But also, it it gave me that little bit of confidence as you see people who you thought were stronger than you slowly falling away. And then there was there's one point where, where training really changed for me. And it was an exercise where it's part survival exercise. So you're in this woods, um, sat around a fire, starving and freezing. And part navigation exercise. So in between sat around the fire, starving and freezing. You have to go out and conduct like a navigation 
um, and I remember doing a couple of them and thinking I'm never ever going to be able to do the next one and I wasn't feeling sorry for myself it was very matter of fact uh, and the next one came in I set off on it thinking well I'm not going to be able to complete this and when I came back in to the woods I was astonished genuinely astonished but I was certain I wouldn't be able to do the next one and when the next one came in I got back and again astonished but I was absolutely certain I wouldn't do the next one and when I got back after the you know the third one where I, that I thought <laughs> I would never pass I, I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that you know I probably don't know what I am capable of I thought that was my limit and each time I've done it and training really changed for me then because I stopped it gave me the confidence to realize that I could do this and and I finally found something that I was good at I, I said that I was an academic I wasn't sporty um, even though I loved sports and I, I wasn't even one of the naughty kids, you know, smoking behind the, the bins. I, I felt that I was, I had nothing going for me. And then in training at that, after that exercise, it was like I'd finally found something in life that I could excel at and it was not giving in. And um, that sort of carried me through. And uh, I, I passed out. I was one of only 11 out of 38 of us who joined up, um, who actually got all the way through. A couple of my friends got injured and passed out with subsequent um, troops. But, yeah, so those two lessons really, really stuck with me. The first one, not knowing where your limit is. And, well, I'm 54 now. Um, I've got four Guinness World Records for rowing. And I still don't know where that limit is. So, you know, and, and the other one is, is when things really get tough, is not lying to yourself, is being honest and not allowing, you know, when you you get those lies that you, you try and tell yourself, you think, oh, well, if I give up now, I'll be stronger for it. And I can come, then you know that's a lie and not listening to them. So those two lessons really from training, I I still go back to them and rely on them uh, now. I think both of them are incredibly important, um, especially when you're talking about the first one, when you're saying you don't realise your own capabilities. And every time you would say, I didn't think I was going to do the next one, and then I did the next one, and then I didn't think I was going to do the next one, and then I did the next one. I... I mean, at the end of the day, we're all humans and we all think that. We all think, oh, I can't do this. And then we suddenly do it and we're like, okay, wait a minute, I did it. So if I can do this, what else can I do? And it's it's learning that we're actually all a lot stronger or, you know, mentally resilient or whatever it might be than we actually think we are. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I mean, there's, um, there's a lot of research going, you know, into... Uh, the way we think and and the way we process information and and, and there's a lot of research um, based around uh, the age of one to three where they they believe we're hardwired to listen to don't do this don't do that don't put your hand in the fire don't you know because it, it, it evolutionary you know, speaking it kept us alive 
Um, but I think uh, we still keep those don'ts hardwired mm. into us, and of, often um, we're we're held back by them. I think, and and you have to. It's almost like unlearning a set of uh, instructions. Almost like it's almost like a, a, a program, like you know, an operating system. If, if if you think of your brain as a computer, that some of the operating system actually served a purpose between the ages of one and three before you could actually, you know, process um, danger and information. It kept you alive and it served a pro. It served a purpose then. But we're we're still hardwired with that, with that with that operating system that tells us don't, and it, and it does hold us back. Yeah, I've actually heard a lot of things like that as well, and that when we are younger, obviously we are taught, yeah, don't do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't go there. So we just think that we're not meant to do so many different things, even if we get to a point where we're an adult we're like well I'm an adult now I can do this but subconsciously somewhere we we know that we're not maybe meant to do certain things so mm. it is you're right it's unlearning it's unlearning things that we've <laughs> learned <laughs> I think I think it's called um, um transactional analysis um it's okay. it that's part of it it's you know there's a lot of uh there's a lot of research gone into it so it's you know yeah. based in some facts but I think that you know, being that um, propensity to not try something, I think, is hardwired into us. And if you don't try, then you don't know what you can achieve. And, yeah, and you can't. I, I agree with you. It's that. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say that's exactly what it is, isn't it? If you, you don't try something, then, you know, you never know what you're actually going to be able to achieve in the long run. If I hadn't have, um, if I hadn't have joined up, and if I hadn't have gone through the Marines and learnt those lessons, then I, I don't know where I would have learnt them. I don't know where I would have, how in normal life, um, that kind of pushing yourself, and and actually not having the choice. In, in a way, I didn't have the choice to not go out and try it because that would have meant giving up and I couldn't give up. It's, really, it's very, when we're in training, I, I, I imagine a lot of people kind of think of it of like people shouting and standing to attention and marching about, but it's really not like that. It was very much, you should go through training. It was very much like, we don't care. If you don't want to be here, the door's there. And it's, it's, it was all about self-motivation. From day one mm -hmm. in training, from the first morning I woke up in um, Limpston when I was in training, we weren't, um, no one came in and woke us up. We were told what time we had to be outside ready for the next lesson and then work backwards to when we had to get ourselves up to get everything ready. We obviously mm -hmm. failed miserably and suffered the consequences <laughs> of that. But then, you, yeah. The next morning, you have to make sure that you're up even earlier to, to get everything done. But that that self-motivation um, that the Marines sort of instilled in me or taught me allowed mm -hmm. me at that point when I, when I thought, I won't be able to do this. This is almost pointless, me setting off, because I physically, I can't, I won't finish it. 
that allowed me to to learn that lesson that I don't know what I'm capable of and I can keep pushing the envelope as, you know as far as what I can achieve physically yeah and then well it sounds like those kind of things that you learn quite early on in your life probably I mean obviously we'll get into it might have helped you moving forward in things that were to come in the future um and then before we obviously do move on to what happened um, with regards to your leg and everything how how was your times in the Royal, Royal Marines? It was, um, uh, I suppose, um, well, not I suppose, it was definitely, I see it in terms of uh, before and after Iraq, because I joined the Marines because I wanted to be a brave person. And then I got in and then I found that uh, I was, I felt like I was living a lie, like imposter syndrome on, on steroids, really, because right to the core of me I believed that I was a coward so whenever anything would happen or at the back of everything whenever I'd done well or passed the course with a with a, a good pass or achieved something there would always be a voice in the back of my head that would say well that's fine but we both know when it comes to it you know when it happens you're not going to be able to do it because you're a coward and a, and a in a very, it's not everything a soldier does, but it is a very real part of being a soldier is fighting. And I believed absolutely, almost as a matter of fact, that I would really struggle when it came. And then I was saying I was fortunate enough to be, it's fortunate in terms of what we're talking about, but being being fortunate going to war isn't really... Um, you know, it sounds like a strange thing to say, but I was a corporal in charge of a section of, uh, there's eight men in a section, three sections to a troop, three troops to a company, three companies to a unit. That's the basis of what was then, um, the, the how the British military was kind of built. And also at the very, very basic level, the fighting is is done at the uh, section level, and I was in Charlie Company, Forty Commando, and we were the first troops on the ground in Iraq when we went in, and um, we were stuck on a corner, my section, and I, it, we were um, under fire, and I couldn't order anyone round the corner into oncoming fire, I knew that I'd have to lead my section round. It was a very matter-of-fact decision that I didn't have to gear myself up to do it. It was like, well, this is my job. This is what I have to do. And I led my section round the corner into what I thought was um, oncoming fire. And I believed that there was a very, very real chance that I was going to get shot and come back the other way and I've done it anyway so I didn't realize on that corner that my life changed because from that point onwards whenever that voice in my you know it was, it was almost it was like a real voice it was like well yeah but you can't really because you're a coward whenever that came up well I could say well I led my section around the corner and on coming fire where's your evidence and in <laughs> actually, I don't think we was under that much fire 
I think one of my uh, one of my lads in my section, I think he was having a bit of a flap and a bit of a panic. But when I led the section round, I didn't know that. And I know that I didn't. And that voice became less and less as as my career went on, as um, like time went on after that moment. And it gave me more confidence, really, in, in myself and my own abilities. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I then volunteered for something called Special Duties, which isn't Special Forces. It's very, very different. Special Forces being the SAS, SBS. Um, uh, special Duties is kind of a bit like that, but for slightly fatter older people. And by that point in my career, I was slightly fatter and older. <laughs> and um, uh, I ended up serving in a, uh, a tri-service unit for the last eight, nine years of my career. Um, in working in special duties, which I absolutely loved. And I I dreamed of being a Royal Marine because I wanted to be a brave person. I ended up working, um, doing free tours of Afghan, Afghanistan, where I worked in what we call the covert profile. And you can imagine the level of training it takes to get to someone to a point where they can operate essentially behind enemy lines in essentially undercover. Well, that was me. That was my day job. And I really felt that I'd not only become that brave, strong person, I felt that I was um, someone who defined themselves by physicality. And, and I felt very, very capable. And for the first time in my life, I could stare at the person in the mirror and be proud of who I saw staring back. But I was actually, I was more proud of the journey that I knew it took to get there. So I was very aware of being told you're not what we're looking for twice. And the night I left to go on the potential Royal Marines course all those years ago, my uncle and aunt came round to visit us. And my uncle, obviously very proud of saying, look, I'm going on the selection course for the Marines. He sat and told me, he says, you'll never pass. You'll not be able to stick the discipline. Um, and even if you could, they wouldn't want you, honestly. And, you know, and, and training was the, the probably the one of the only things that I've done in my life where I've gone straight through. Even my special duties course, I had to, um, no one actually passed my course. A couple of us failed and had to go back and, and redone it. And out of my course, it was about 100 26 people who started it the initial selections um only three of us passed and got the qualification but at every point in my career there's been a failure or something's happened where i'd have to go back and 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 do something again so when i say that i was more proud of the journey it took to become that person uh, i you know it's not just a cliche i genuinely mean that because I felt like I fought so hard to be that person I saw staring back in the mirror. Well, it is the journey, isn't it? Really, we all, you know, we all look for the 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 you know the checkered flag or the mountain top, or we always look for the next big thing, or the you know how we want to feel at the end. But you know, whether it's we reach little goals, big goals, whatever we achieve 
it's in those moments where yes it's incredible we're achieving it in that moment but then when we look back and we reflect you it, it's it's remembering how far we've come what we've done along the way to to do this thing to 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 you know to to be able to look at ourselves in the mirror and feel that way and it is the journey um and that's why i think so many people you know i think a lot more people need to you need to enjoy the journey as well because that you know that 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 that's taking you on to where you want to be and where you want to go yeah 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 definitely it's well it's life isn't it it's like live, well enjoying the journey is i suppose the definition of living in the present isn't it yeah 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 it is it is and then obviously um is it after you left you then had the accident was it after you left the marines no, or I was during? In, still in i was um i was actually on a um uh I was, I was driving back to work after christmas leave when um shall, shall i tell you the story um i come across a yeah. uh well before that i actually uh driving back it's a sunday evening just after christmas and uh i got a flat tire about half hour into the journey and I took a picture, put it on Facebook with the caption, could this journey get any worse? And um, yeah, honestly, a couple, a little while later, I uh, come across a car that had crashed into the central reservation on the M3 just before the M25. And uh, I immediately pulled over onto the hard shoulder. It was about midnight on a Sunday night. It was horrible weather and the roads were fairly empty. And the people that were in the car, they managed to get out and they were stood on the hard shoulder. And uh, I checked them over because um, I, was, I, was I would have said I was a very competent first aid. I'd had a lot of training. And then um, I turned to walk along the back up the hard shoulder and used the torch on my phone to warn oncoming traffic. When another car crashed into theirs with such force, its engine and gearbox came flying out hit me, knocked me about 15, 20 metres over the barrier and onto the uh, grass verge on the other side of the hard shoulder. Um, completely, excuse me, completely dislocated my left leg at the knee and uh, took me right leg off uh, below the knee. Um, and uh, I almost died. I'd lost over half my body's blood uh, bleeding out through, uh, obviously, the uh, me lost leg and then um i literally on the edge of uh, life and death and i i was told afterwards i'd lost over half my body's blood now typically people die approaching that so i'd gone beyond that so when i say i was on the on the edge knife edge with knife and death i you know i absolutely was and a rastafarian from hackney called uh frank who's my guardian angel, came along and said, is there anything I could do? I said, yeah, I need a tourniquet on my leg. And he tried tying, he took his belt off, tied it round um, what was left of my leg above the knee, but we couldn't get it tight enough. And then I just had an idea and I got uh, Frank's daughter, uh, Zanelli, to stand on me groin and put all her weight on my femoral artery, you know, through her heel onto me uh, artery and that, stopped the bleeding and saved me life and we waited about uh, 30 minutes 25 30 minutes for the ambulance to turn up after that point 
Uh, so if when I say Frank's my guardian angel, I absolutely mean it because if he hadn't come along, I wouldn't be here now. And uh, so yeah, it saved my life. Um, I'd lost so much blood they had to give me. They flew in a blood substitute and gave me a uh, um, a transfusion there on the side of the road, and then flew me to St George's Hospital in Tooting. Well, I woke up the next day, the night before, I was someone who was proud of the person they saw staring back, someone who defined themselves by what they could do physically. Next morning, I woke up in hospital, glad to be alive, absolutely glad to be alive, because I can remember the fight I had, and I knew how close I came to dying. But I thought the person I was, someone who defined themselves by what I could do physically, had gone. I was no longer that person. Um. I think. Well, I mean, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? Because there you were doing a selfless deed, right? <laughs> Helping people on the side of yeah, the road. Yeah, say that, but Ed, there's not a person I know who, in the same circumstances, wouldn't have stopped. So it wasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. It wasn't anything unusual. It was. It was a very normal thing. Um, to have stopped and helped him. I, I don't know anyone who could who would have driven past. And then, obviously, kind of what what were the next steps after what happened, after waking up in well, hospital? I, I thought I'd have to redefine who I was. I genuinely thought the person I, I thought mm -hmm. I was had gone. Uh, so I thought, right, well, if I'm going to be a disabled person, I'm going to be try and be the best um, version of a disabled person I could possibly be. And I um, threw myself first of all into rehabilitation. I had a focus, and I start walking, and then um, I wanted to. Uh, I, I got involved with the Royal Marines charity uh, before I lost my leg. Through uh, bizarrely, I rescued a dog a puppy actually, a tiny little puppy in Afghanistan. And again, it was it was nothing more than a human reaction. It was stuck between two fences. And I just reached out and grabbed it. And it was like, oh, brilliant, we've got a dog. What do we do now? Because it had been abandoned. And, um, and uh, I, I got put in touch with a charity called Nalzad Dogs, who brought her back and she became our family pet. And they asked me, if I'd uh, if I'd do some fundraising, and up until that point, you know, I said I was absolutely physically bang average. I would never have perceived of a situation where I would do something impressive enough physically to ask people to give me money to do it, you know, like to be sponsored. But when they asked me, it kind of forced me into doing it, and I got the bug, and I ended up uh, running a marathon over Dartmoor. Uh, for the Royal Marines charity, and then um, I live in a little village in, in Dartmoor, and there was a young lad who was a Royal Marine who broke his neck by diving into a snowdrift in, in Norway, just mucking around, and uh, he was uh, paralysed from the neck down, and they were looking to raise money to get him a robotic exoskeleton to give him a little bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a little bit more ability, a little bit more movement, um, and a little bit more independence eventually. And I think it it cost ninety thousand, I believe, 
and uh, a lot of friends in the village all got together and uh, they were all a lot older than me and it was like all right so I've got to run another marathon and I thought I can't do one marathon so I've already done that can't do two because Eddie (laughs) Izzard had just done 42 of them back to back so I thought I've got to run a double marathon I've got to run 52 miles which I did do and we raised £20,000 amongst everyone in the village and um that was six months before I uh, lost my leg. And the Royal Marines Charity stepped in with the other 70,000 and gave Dom, his name was Dom, got in the robotic exoskeleton. And, and then he then went on to uh, enable him to go into university to train as a a, um, a counsellor and then help other people. And so that kind of link with the Royal Marines Charity was already there. So when I lost my leg, and when I uh, started walking again, I set myself the goal of raising 10,000 for them. And I, everything from the first mile I walked, I've done as, as a sponsored walk and organised uh, charity music nights. And, um, and when I got to the end of my first year, I had raised, uh, I think it was about £12,000. But then I was looking, I didn't know what I was going to do next, didn't know what I was going to do as a job. Uh, I knew that, you know, my career as a soldier was over, but I had no idea what I could do. Um, and uh, I got an email asking for volunteers. Uh, they were looking to put together the world's first all amputee crew to row across the Atlantic. Um, and I I signed up, <laughs> went for it. Do you think that the do you think that the feeling of signing up and you know going for it was it more of a I'm trying to think how to it was it more of a I want to do this because I want to challenge myself or is it because I you know I just I don't know what I want to do right now do you, do you see what I'm yeah, trying to ask? Um, there's a little bit more to it than that. I remember years and years ago I was in the um, Royal Marines Commando Display Team, best three months of my life, <laughs> um, and then. Uh, we had an end of season um, party drink and I organised it and I organised it in a bar in Port. I think it was called the Blue Ball and it's got like a cellar bar and the guy who was running the pub at the time was a former Royal Marine and we I went down there to discuss having the do in his bar and he had a picture of this strange looking boat on the wall and I was like, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, that's my boat I tried to row across the Atlantic with and at that point I'd never heard of anyone rowing across an ocean I'd just never heard of it before I didn't even think it was possible and I was absolutely astonished that someone would try that and then the old romanticism of just you know two guys in a rowing boat against the vastness of the ocean it just really captured me and I spent about an hour asking them questions talking to them about it and then I never encountered it at Ocean Rowing, that is, until my first time I went to Headley Court where you do your rehabilitation. And uh, in the bed opposite me, it's laid out very much like a um, hospital ward. So you've got like hospital beds with curtains round them, you know, three on each side. And the guy in the bed opposite me had this big, huge beard and uh, no legs. He was walking around on two, two pins, not even proper prosthetic legs. 
and uh, beards tend to stand out in the uh, military. So I asked him, I said, what's with the beard? And he says, oh, I've just come back from rowing uh, the Atlantic. And I was like, what? <laughs> so that was not only the first time <laughs> that I realised that having lost my leg, it wasn't the end to, you know, I thought that was the end of an adventurous, doing anything adventurous. I learned, you know, it showed me then that it, uh, you know, it wasn't the end of that. He, and, and his name was Cal, Cal Royce. And he ended up skippering my row across with the, he ended up rowing again, but this time with an all amputee crew. And uh, so when, you know, having talked to Cal and spoken to him, we became friends. When that email came, I immediately signed up for it. So it was kind of on my radar a little bit, bizarrely. It's interesting that it was already on your radar and then, um, well, it, it's already on your radar and then it just, it comes towards you. Yeah. Um, so how, 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 how was it? Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> it was everything I thought it would be. It was um, yeah. uh, horrific, hard, scary, petrifying, amazing, tiring amazing and tiring all in one uh the first bit of it was really <laughs> really difficult because i'd not rowed before i'd not mm. done anything really nautical i've not been on a um, sailing boat or done anything like that and then all of a sudden i'm in the middle of the atlantic in a tiny tiny little rowing boat and um yeah that that was really difficult and then we got caught in let me get this right the earliest january hurricane for 72 years and the strongest January hurricane in 61 years, Hurricane Alex. How unlucky is that? <laughs> um, actually, it it changed my life as dramatically as losing my leg because I'm, I'm, I can remember it vividly. It was a real moment of um, a, an epiphany almost where I was rowing. It was about two thirds of the way across. And then I just suddenly realised I was the same person. And I can't explain to you how important that moment was, how life-changing it was for me. And unless you lose that sense of who you are, that sense of self, I thought the person I was had gone when I lost my leg. Uh, but more than that, it, it was that person who I finally felt proud of. I thought he'd gone, that was it. And I was start, I really felt like I was starting from scratch. So regaining that sense of self, it, it, was, it was also regaining that same person who fought so hard and got, you know, turned down, rejected, fouled and picked himself up and finally got to be the person I always wanted to be. Well, that's the person I got back. So it, it changed everything for me. Um, and when we rode, we rode into, we rode from the Canaries uh, across the Atlantic to Antigua and we rode into English Harbour in um, Antigua. It was probably the most amazing moment of my life, uh, you know, up to that point. And uh, we rode into the history, uh, uh, Guinness World Record books as well, as the world's first physically disabled crew of four to row in the ocean. Yeah, so it was amazing. Yeah. 
I think a really interesting point that you were saying was about, um, and I was going to actually ask you when you mentioned that you, you realized that the person you once were, let's say, wasn't actually gone. And I was going to ask you, have you had a sense of being proud with who you are since that moment of having it in the military? Have you ever had it again? Yeah. Um, actually, it's, it's being proud of the person you see staring back or being happy with a person you see staring back. It had been, it had been a very real mission of mine from a very, very young age yeah. from, I thought it was <laughs> being a Royal Marine. And then when I was a Royal, finally got to be a Royal Marine, I thought it was, you know, it was still out of my reach because I was a coward and I wasn't ever going to be a real Royal Marine. And, it was discovering that I wasn't a coward, which gave me the the confidence to then take it a step further, uh, maybe in, you know, volunteering and, and, and passing the special duties course and then subsequently, you know, uh, operating and working in Afghanistan. I think I was out there for 18 months, all, all told. You can imagine, you, you know, you, you, you get everyone who goes out on the ground um you know outside of the wire fence you know on patrols and things like that you 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 know in 18 months of doing that you get you do get put in some tricky situations and and so that sense of self and self-belief and and in you who you are kind of went from being someone that you know um I knew I wasn't a coward and I was quite happy with that, but it gave me a sense of self. You know, being rubbish at everything is really hard, especially when you're a kid. And I was rubbish at everything. And finally getting to be that person, it 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 felt like it was something that I knowingly was trying to achieve. Um, so it's not a case of re gaining or re-going out to um, prove to myself again afterwards it it was a it was more of a sense whilst I was rowing of realizing I hadn't lost that person I was still that person yeah so you know the before and after losing my leg there wasn't it was different before I lost my leg it was an actual uh, striving to be that person whereas after I lost my leg it you know was i i couldn't be that person anymore because i only had one leg i had to, i had to be the best version of a disabled person that was what i was trying to be but to realize i was you know i was still the same person was it it was life changing again it changed my life as significantly as losing my leg actually well i got a cup of tea thank you it's interesting that you say that isn't it though because um life-changing moments people don't obviously realize um and sometimes it's not just one or two they can be quite a few different ones but how how altering it can really be for your mind and for just everything that you're doing and everywhere that you are yeah um i think i think uh i think with me those moments have been so extreme like the lows you know yeah. uh were quite low and i'm talking about out you know 
growing up in the circumstances I grew up in. And then the highs on the other end of being ex been their extremes and then the, the, the lows by losing your leg. Are, are, I think when you live your life in extremes, which I have never set out, to, you know, I didn't set out for any of this to happen. It just kind of did. But when you do it, you can see things easier. They're easier to see. That kind of makes sense because they're in, you know, every, I think people go through the same problems. It's just to a less or a greater degree. Not that it means less or, you know, or greater to the person. It's, it's just not as noticeable. Am I making sense? Does that kind of make sense? And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it does. It does. It does. And uh, what I wanted to ask you next then is with regards to that, you know, everybody goes through highs and lows and some are some for some people's, it is a lot more extreme than others. Um, if you could give a piece of advice to somebody that was in that, that extreme low, maybe to the point where they think that they have to reinvent themselves. And I think you were talking about how you thought you would have to reinvent yourself. Um, what would you say to somebody that's at that position? Um, well, I think anyone, they, two, two bits of advice. Uh, one specific yeah. to people who believe they have to reinvent themselves is you don't, you haven't lost, you know, because you've lost your leg or a bit of you or your job or a relationship, whatever you've lost hasn't changed who you are. You know, you are who you are. It's not based on how many legs you've got, what job you do, you know. Um, a lot of people, especially in the armed forces, their sense of self is so bound up with what they do that when people transition to um, civilian life, it, they lose that sense of self or they perceive that they have because it was so bound up within what they, do, they were doing. But they haven't. They are the same person. So that's what I would say to people who... Who are feeling, you know, are feeling a sense of loss, or, or having to re redefine their feel that they've lost that sense of themselves is that they haven't. Anyone, but anyone who's going through troubles or dark times, um, everything is transient. And you know, when I learned that, this is really, really bizarre. But it really struck me at a very young age. I think I was about ten, might have been younger, nine or ten. Uh, my mum um, sort of remarried, she didn't sort of, she remarried a bloke called Charlie and um, he sort of moved in with us and he had two kids from a, a previous marriage as well, so it was like a crap Brady Bunch and um, he, you don't know what the Brady Bunch is, do you? I've heard of it. <laughs> I, I just realised it was a sitcom in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually heard yeah. of it, so I have heard of it. So. <laughs> Someone listens to this will be laughing. <laughs> Most people will be laughing. At that. Hey, <laughs> anyway, um, we went on holiday to Cornwall. <laughs> went on holiday to Cornwall, and um, uh, Charlie was—he uh, wanted to go fishing, and we, like us kids, were being rubbish at getting ready. And he kept shouting, "Tired and times waits for no one." He kept shouting, "Tired and time waits for no man." And was like, "I've." had no idea what he was talking about but we finally got to the cliffs uh, you know the cornish granite cliffs 
and looking out across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And I was born and brought up in Dagenham. And, you know, you can't get more different to that. And and it, something in me just clicked. And I was, I was instantly felt a sense of absolute smallness, insignificance in comparison. Because you could see the ocean just stretching off and the waves were smashing into the cliffs. And, and it just, something in me just clicked. And when he said, time and tide, wait for no man, time and tide, wait for no man, I just realised then just how small we are compared to, Hmm. you know, the tide, but also time. And whenever um, I, you know, after my dad left and Charlie sort of moved in, my life kind of got a little bit worse. My my relationship with my mum, absolutely deteriorated and um you know i i still don't know why still don't know why um but you know my life after that was really really not great and you know i was uh i was suicidal as a you know from about the age of 10 to about i don't know 14 maybe and, you know, I was really not a happy kid. But whenever I was in, like, those depths of despair, those words would come back that time and tide wait for no man. And at time, you can't stop it. Even if I wanted this moment of despair to last, I can't make it last. I Even if I wanted it to last, it won't. And... That really has carried me through, you know, dark times in, in training when you're doing something that is like physically exhausting and you want to give up. You don't because you know it will come to an end. This moment will not last. Everything is transient. And when you are in the depths of despair, you know, I I, I firmly, that carries me through. And that's what I would say to someone who is in a downtime, is that this won't last. Even if you wanted it to, it won't. It can't. It was very long-winded. Sorry about that, but it... No, 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 no. It wasn't long-winded at all. I, I really appreciated the story because you're right. It's um, it's like the... I don't know the exact wording, but it's about, you know, storms. You watch a storm outside your window and the storm passes. Yeah. You know, the, the storms pass. What you're going through, the darkness, the storm, it all passes eventually. Everything is transient. Um, it does eventually pass. Everything but... is transient. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then on a, on a, a, a different note, what other exciting things have you got coming up or what are your other what are your other guinness world Re- guinness world book of records oh, yeah <laughs> yeah um, well after i rode as part of the team um actually the night we got in i said to me wife claire i'm thinking about doing it solo <laughs> she thought i was she thought i was drunk <laughs> and i was um but yeah um, well, I, I saw there was an opportunity because i I'd come to yeah. the end of me rehabilitation, so I weren't going to get any better. And I reckoned on 18 months, a year to 18 months, where I'd still be getting paid by the Marines. 
I'd just rode across mm-hmm. the Atlantic in a team of four. So I knew how to do it. I knew the way. <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, I, I kind of found another mission. And that's like proving no one should be defined by disability, but also keeping wounded, injured servicemen mm-hmm. in the nation's conscience. And that, I sort of saw an opportunity. I thought, if I don't take this opportunity now, it might not come round again. So I decided to row again. But this time I, I wanted to, I saw a record. Uh, it was held by, it was broken actually, by a Norwegian called Stein Hoff in 2002. And he rowed solo and unsupported from Portugal. So from mainland Europe, uh, all the way across to South America. So from mainland to mainland. And he'd done it in 96 days, mm-hmm. 12 hours and 45 minutes. So I thought if I could beat an able-bodied record in something as physically demanding as rowing, but not only that, rowing itself, 70% of your power is generated from your legs. So, you know, with one leg, okay. that would send a massive statement and no one should be defined by disability. And it also, mm-hmm. hopefully, keep wounded, injured servicemen in the nation's conscience. Uh, which is something I feel passionate about. So I went for it. And, um, yeah, after a few trials and tribulations, a few false starts and cancellations, um, I finally set off in um, January uh, 2019. And uh, I rode into Cayenne in French Guyana. Uh, and I've done it in 60 days, 16 hours and 6 minutes. So I beat the able-bodied record by 36 days. Um, so I got the so I got the first row, I got the first part of the crew, the first physically disabled crew of four to row any ocean. I got the first physically disabled person to row solo across the Atlantic, solo and unsupported. I got the longest ocean row by a physically disabled person. I weren't expecting that. I think Guinness were doing a buy one, get one free uh, offer on world records. <laughs> but the one I really wanted and the one I've got is, um, and I've still got it, it's still standing, is uh, I'm the fastest person to row solo from mainland Europe to mainland South America. There's a guy I'm, I've sort of been helping with a bit of advice who's going at the, um, it'll be going soon actually, um, in December, he's going to have a go at me record. So we'll see if it stands. Ah, oh, well, that is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, whether it does or it doesn't, that is seriously impressive. I mean, that is incredible. So well done to you. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, don't uh, don't underestimate the power of stupidity. <laughs> and having said, well, you say that. Well, I said it because having said, I will never, ever, ever sit in a rowing boat again. I'm planning on doing it again. <laughs> but you know what it's funny because some of the um some of the best things that happen to us have come from a eh, why not i'm just gonna do a kind of moment haven't well, they i know <laughs> what i'm up, up against there's a there's a uh, a very real uh saying in ocean rowing and that it's much 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 harder to get a boat to the start line than what it is to get it to a finish line in fact more ocean rows foul to start than those that start to finish it's it's uh it costs a lot of money and you've got to get a lot of sponsorship and it's quite difficult getting yeah. it together <clears throat> but that's when I... 
And then when you—that's what I'm running around with my hair on fire doing at the moment. <laughs> but then when you think about that in terms of um, humans and everyday life, the way you were putting that, how I saw that is, well, a lot of us fail before we start because we think of everything that's going to go wrong or all the what ifs or the no buts or we can't do this or I'm not good enough. We think of all the problems before the start. So we don't even end up starting that thing because we're too scared of what's going to happen. Does that make sense? So ironically, it's it's what happens with everyday life with with people. Sometimes we don't even start because we're too scared. But once we do start, we get towards yeah. the end. Um, but for me personally, this time it's slightly different. Um, I got approached by a Ukrainian uh, boat builder uh, called Dimitro. He's kind of a bit of a mainstay. In ocean mm -hmm. rowing is, is the home of ocean rowing here in Britain for some bizarre reason. Um, and uh, <laughs> Dimitro has been building ocean rowing boats here for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously he's followed the war in Ukraine with a lot of interest and he wanted to do something. So he reached out before Christmas and asked if I'd help him. He, he knows how to build boats, but he doesn't know how to row them. And he doesn't know how to put a rowing team together or a, a rowing project together. And after thinking about it over Christmas, got back in touch with him and said, right, why don't we do a joint um, British and Ukrainian one, yeah. two British wounded servicemen and two wounded Ukrainian servicemen. Um, and I took a long time to actually properly commit myself to it because I knew what I was letting myself in for, not for the row. That's the easy yeah. bit. The hard bit really is <laughs> getting all the sponsorship and getting everything together. Um, and I had to think really, really hard and then take a deep breath. Every Everything I do, I try as a mantra. It has to be for the right reason. Otherwise, it just becomes vacuous nonsense. You know, what is the point in rowing across? The first mm -hmm. time, um, well, my my solo, I feel passionate. I genuinely feel passionate about um, the way disabled people are often def defined by that disability. And I think that's so unfair. I think everyone has the right to have something positive define who they are. And that, to me, really matters. And that's why I rode. Um, not... You know, I didn't do it just to do it because it's there. It There had to be a reason behind it. And for me, this time, what's really um, captured my imagination, I suppose, is the fact that everybody knows how much assistance we're giving to the Ukraine military-wise, military hardware and yeah. training. and But it's only really started to filter through into the mainstream media with a few stories about Ukrainian soldiers being injured and rehabilitation. And, and um, it's showing, really, demonstrating the human cost of the fighting in Ukraine and to raise money for Ukrainian servicemen to, you know, have proper rehabilitation, but not just prosthetics and physically, mentally as well. Um, so we'll be raising money for the Invictus Games Fed Foundation, but ring-fenced for um, the Ukrainian servicemen just to be spent on Ukrainian servicemen and women uh, for um, 
you know, rehabilitation through adventure. And that's the reason behind it. And it and I I I kind of thought, well, it's it's a good thing to do and you know it's a positive thing to do. But do I really want to do it? <laughs> it did actually take a lot for me to make the decision and go, right, yeah. I'm doing it, let's do it. And now I've got a team. Got a team of Ukrainians. So um the Brits are me, myself, um obviously I know the way, been there twice now. Um and my mate I was in the Marines with, uh he's now beef eater in um the Tower of London. And told me off for that. He's not a beef eater, he's a yeoman warder at the tower. Apparently <laughs> 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 it matters. Um and he, he's unfortunately he suffers with uh, multiple sclerosis. So that's the team, and um, mm -hmm. December next year, we'll uh, we'll set off from uh, the Canaries and we're across to the Caribbean. Amazing. Well, good luck. If there's anything you know, any support you need from me and everything we do with I Got Back Up, then please do let well, me know. Well, uh, I've got a friend who we was talking about who's uh, got a uh, box at the Emirates. We're going to try and um, we're just piecing a few <laughs> bits together, a few bios of um the ukrainians doing things with a language barrier is quite difficult but mm -hmm. add a war zone into that mix as well things are quite hard and you know sort of things that you think will be quite simple to get done are taking a bit of time um, but once we've got all this together we're hoping to get um uh, zinchenko um on side as well so if you've got a uh, way of getting to him and letting <laughs> him know this is what we're doing and if he can that'd be brilliant <laughs> i'm serious <laughs> okay <laughs> okay i will see <laughs> we'll see what i can do <laughs> um is there anything else that you want to talk about today um no i i'm something in my life now things happen and i go oh well that's normal I, I can't make sense of it and i think if there's something i want to say to people um in and I've really struggled saying this with some sort of worrying about being condescending when you say things like this. But when when your life mm -hmm. goes upside down and changes, it changes direction. And I think we we try to make sense of things by attaching meaning to them. And actually, the universe don't care about us. So when something bad happens that we think's bad, we say it's bad. Actually, it's just happened. The universe don't care. But when that happens, you get opportunities that you never knew existed, you know, because your life's going down a different road now. And those opportunities, some of them are going to be amazing and beyond what you thought when your life was going that way. And, you know, your life was going that way. You was happy. And then disaster happens. And now it's going this way. And if you can embrace that, you know, you can't change I can't change. I couldn't change it. I lost my leg. I'm, I'm, I'm now going that way. Then if you can embrace that and be open to those opportunities when they come along, you will turn what, you know, you thought of as a negative into being something really positive. And that goes for anything, you know, losing your job or losing your house or losing a relationship. There's lots of things you know, not just physically losing a leg, 
But there's lots of things that happen to us in life that we think is a massive disaster. It's not. It's changed. And if if you'd have gone back to that little boy, that scared little boy, and said to him, you know, one day you'll be a Royal Marine. You know, that was my dream. But more than that, you'll, you'll, you'll work undercover in Afghanistan in war. You'll, you'll be a special duties operator. And then you'll row across the Atlantic twice. You'll be in the Guinness Book of Records. You know that book you get for Christmas every year? You'll be in that. There'll actually be a picture of you in it with your records. And then, and this is when I say my life, things happen now. And I go, oh, well, that's normal. I'm, I'm part of a team testing exercise equipment for um, the International Space Station for astronauts. And I ended up on a, uh, a zero gravity flight actually testing this equipment as an amputee. In, and if you'd have said to that little boy that you will have a tiny, tiny part, admittedly, in something that's going to end up in space, he'd never believe you, ever believe you. But that's what happens when disaster strikes. It opens up other opportunities because your life changes. So hang in there. Everything is transient. And actually, it could throw up things that you never thought were possible. That is the most perfect way. <laughs> You've actually got me going a little bit. That is the most perfect way to, to to finish this episode because you've basically taken the words from my mouth that I say myself. Um, you know, life can be going one direction and for whatever reason it might be, it can end up going a completely different direction. But it's not about what happens to us. It's about what we decide to do next. And those things that happen next can be things that A, we have dreamed of or B, we've never dreamt of and end up being even more amazing than the things we first originally dreamt of. Um, you just have to be open to just what's coming next. I, I left school with O-level art. That was it. Right. I genuinely, very, very occasionally, not every day, but I genuinely get text messages from NASA and from ESA, the European Space Agency, I get emails. How? How has that happened? <laughs> I've no idea how that happened. <laughs> but it's true. That's so cool. <laughs> I, was, I, was on, I was on the zero gravity flight and I've got NASA scientists there. I've got a professor there. I think in a minute someone's going to go, sorry, what? Who are you? What are you doing here? But they didn't. And now they text me and ask me questions <laughs> about prosthetics for astronauts. Oh, see, um, yeah, I mean, that you, you, it's, I'm, I'm like losing the words because you really can live the life of your dreams. Uh, it, it really is possible. And that is really cool. I, I'm, I'm, I love space and that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was an email as well. So always check your junk folder. <laughs> That was an email. Someone, yeah. Yeah. someone asked me if I'd come and have a look at this piece of equipment they designed. So he thought it'd have a, a positive implications for um, amputees as well as being used in space for exercise. And then um, NASA, or not NASA, ESA, 
announced they were looking for the world's first uh, para uh, astronauts. And then my life changed again because then I got roped up and swept up in uh, testing the equipment, which was still bonkers. It was still part of the team. Madness. <laughs> um, yeah, well, there we go. You really can live the life of your dreams. And remember to check your junk yes. mail. <laughs> but that's two emails, an email asking to row and an email saying, can I come and have a look at this equipment? Both of them changed the way my life yeah. went. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's also, um, just before we do finish, it's, it's, that's what can happen. You never know every day when you wake up where your life's going to go. You think you might know where it's going, but you have absolutely no idea. And all it can take is an email that comes through to your phone. And that's it. That's it. Life's has changed. Yeah. 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 Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for, uh, yeah. Oh, well, thanks for James for, introducing us and uh, thank you for inviting me it's, it's genuinely an honour yeah as we wrap up today with Lee his journey reminds us that we often underestimate our own capabilities and push past limits we never thought possible take a moment today to look in the mirror and be proud of the person looking back at you knowing the journey it took to get here Life, much like the ocean waves is ever changing and even in the toughest moments these feelings won't last forever Life is unpredictable and disaster can bring unforeseen possibilities that await us, reshaping the course of our lives. So this week, imagine telling your younger self about the incredible person you've become and the challenges you've conquered. Would they believe you? So stay tuned for more incredible stories and thank you for joining us. Until next time, keep discovering your boundless potential, keep rising above and beyond, and remember, every wave settles, revealing new horizons. And don't forget, you have the power to get back up.